What is it you want, Barry? What do you want? You, you want the moon? Just say the word and I'll throw a lasso around it and pull it down. You want answers! I want the truth! You can't handle the truth! I see dead people. All I know is that first, you've got to get mad. You've got to say, I'm a human being. God damn it! My life has value! Filmmaking Conversations with Damien Swayde is part of the critical conversations currently taking place across the film community. The podcast reaches out to the next generation of filmmakers who continue to look for inspiration and guidance. Remember to hit the subscribe button and leave a comment in the comments section. Share the podcast with friends and family and have a great day. And now over to the host of the show, Damien Swaby. Michael, how are you today? I'm fine. It's a beautiful Thursday out here. I live out in Malibu, so the weather is lovely today. So I'm uh, taking advantage of that. I'm staying pretty much staying out of the office. Well, the, the office is open in Santa Monica, but um, there's no usually there's no need to be physically present in the office. And these days, of course, like many of us, I'm tending to do more work from home. But uh, yeah, it's things are fine. So tell us, how did you get your start as someone who specializes in entertainment law? I'm one of those guys that knew when I was a little boy that I wanted to be an attorney. Um, wow. Which is, yeah, my dad, my dad, who's since passed, but I mean, when he was around, he would talk about the fact that I wanted to be a lawyer when I was like five. And uh, it honestly, this is going to sound completely naff, but I was a big fan of Perry Mason. And, oh, uh, I remember that. Yeah. Right, and it's well, it's back on now on MeTV, one of those nostalgia yeah. cable channels, so I can actually watch it. You know, back in the day. Uh, but yeah, I because I, I this is also going to sound somewhat self-serving, but I I always thought a lawyer's role was counselor because that was what Perry Mason was counselor at law, and I always thought that counseling people was a very noble. Uh, cool thing to give them advice on on how to get out of jams that they might have gotten in or whatever. So that was my perception of, of what a lawyer was all along. Um, and also, I mean, not to get too deep into the weeds, but I was the youngest of three boys. And I don't know if you have any uh, research, you know, done any research on the dynamics of families or whatever, but usually the youngest is the mediator kind of peacemaker. Um, so it was in my case. Yeah. So it was in my case. So in any event, I wound up being a, a debater in high school and college, and that just further bolstered my desire to be an attorney. Then went to law school and came out here uh, to Los Angeles to work, not because I had family here. I'm from Miami, actually, but um, I came out to L.A. Uh, just to sort of make a big move, you know, f geographically and figuratively, I guess, from Florida. And um, so I, I worked for a big corporate firm for a couple of years and then went in-house to Columbia Pictures. Columbia Pictures. Excellent. Yeah, I was uh, I left Columbia Pictures to go to I don't know if you remember a company called Lorimar. Um, it's it's more or less gone now, uh, but Lorimar was a major television company in the 80s. They produced Dallas and Falcon Crest and Dynasty. And then they started a film company 
1987, I think, and they uh, they recruited me from Columbia to come over and and run um, some of the legal department aspects uh, at Lorimar for the film company because I was at Columbia Pictures. I was in charge of um, well, I wasn't in charge of. I had a boss that was the general counsel, but I, I was the senior lawyer involved in litigation matters for the studio. So if somebody sued us for copyright infringement on one of the films or, you know, whatever, a television show, um, I would supervise the outside counsel. And I was also a VP of distribution legal. So I was involved in the uh, all the legal issues that came up between the studio and the movie theaters, mostly antitrust and uh, financial, like underreporting, ticket sales, that type of thing. Anyway, so I went to Lorimar to sort of take, you know, to start their division when they started a film company. Um, and then um, Lorimar got bought by Warner Brothers in the like 88, I think. And so I, uh, I left that job, went back to Columbia for a minute and then pretty much started my own practice in 92, I think. So since 92, coming up on 30 years, I've been a sole practitioner doing entertainment law in uh, both contracts, as we call it, transactional uh, side of things, as well as litigation. You've worked with people across America, in New York, in Hollywood, all different types of creatives. Why is it important for a creative to have an attorney? Well, I mean... They, they, they should want legal advice. I mean, it depends on the kind of movie they're making or what kind of project they're working on, how intensely they need, you know, hands-on day-to-day legal uh, counsel or negotiations of contracts. Um, but basically, you know, the one of the problems is that, and this is going to sound sort of cynical, and I don't mean it to because I'm, I'm actually not a cynical person, but... My experience has shown me that people are all friendly and happy and like, you know, we're creative. And so we're going to make a movie together. But then when finances come into play or credit comes into play or whatever, uh, those friendly, happy times tend to fade into the background. (laughs) And instead, (laughs) you have a dispute. You know, one of my biggest litigation matters was between twin brothers and they they hated each other. One of them had there, they, they were musicians. Um, in fact, you, you, you might've heard of them. They were sort of a rock glam rock group in the eighties called Gene loves Jezebel. And they had a couple of hits in the eighties. Um, and I represented one of the brothers against the other over the rights to the name, you know, and it was, it was one of the nastiest litigations I've ever been involved in. And these guys were twins. I, I just have seen it so many times where friends, uh, thought everything was fine. Don't worry about it. We don't need to bring lawyers into this. We'll just do a handshake. And then there's a dispute. And the handshake was not sufficient to delineate or document. Obviously, didn't document it because it was a verbal agreement. So there, there's there's a bigger dispute coming down the pike because uh, there was nothing in writing. Um, there's just so many issues that people don't really think about because, I mean, I think most filmmakers have sort of a general kind of understanding that there are certain issues that come up, like you can't make a movie from someone else's book without their permission, you know, just broad stroke sort of stuff like that. But there's all kinds of pitfalls along the way that uh, 
you don't really think about and you shouldn't. I mean, you're, you know, you're not an attorney. You're a, you're a creative person. You're trying to make a film or a TV show. Um, and I just I think it's a good idea to have somebody if ideally to form a relationship with a producer or a director and, and have somebody on call for them as an attorney, um, whatever the financial arrangement is, whether they have you on a retainer technically or, you know, just you, you bill them each time they call or whatever it is. Um, the ideal would be for you to be able to call me and ask me a question or you say, hey, I've got this project, but there's this issue. And what do you think? Or I have this project. Do you see any issues you know, that I'm not thinking of? Yeah. Um, because there's there's issues about the financing. There's issues about the chain of title. Um, there's sometimes, you know, depending on the project, there's union issues, you know, between uh, the producer and the labor union. Um, so I'm a big percentage of my uh, client base are producers, and so I'm representing them sort of across the board on all these kinds of issues. But I do have some writer director clients, and they, I mean, they should just have an attorney representing them to protect them, basically, to make sure they're not getting screwed. You know, a lot of the people in the independent world, as you probably already know, um, don't necessarily have agents or managers. Um, I mean, certainly some of them do. Obviously, some of the bigger names have, you know, complete teams all the way from agent, manager, lawyer, business manager, publicist, you know, the whole, the whole gamut. But I found that I wind up being a manager, in essence, for many of my clients because they don't otherwise have a manager. So I kind of play that role um, and they don't have an agent. So there's, there's no agent making the deal for them. And then I'm just documenting it, right? I'm just filling in the blanks to deal terms that have already been agreed. So I'm many times actually the person making the deal for them. And so they just should have somebody representing their interests and knowing that this particular rate on a film with this budget is, you know, not not right. It's too low. Or this credit, uh, you know, for this particular type of TV show is wrong. You know, they shouldn't agree to that credit, uh, or whatever. You know, whatever the deal terms are, um, it's just all. It ultimately always comes down to protection. You know, just trying to protect the client's interests going forward and uh, making sure that whatever their role is, you know, isn't burdened by some legal dispute going down the road, right? You mentioned earlier a retainer. How would a client approach you about a retainer type deal? Well, um, in terms of how they would find me, I'm not sure. I, I think you mean more about like what, what is the parameters of that agreement as opposed to physically, how would they find Mike Blaha? Uh, yeah, so the, the retainer agreement, it's funny. It actually has just changed the law has just changed in the last year or two where um, you you now you can do a, a straight retainer um, and people usually call a retainer. They're using the term wrong. Uh, technically, a retainer is you pay me $10,000 a year or $50,000 a month or whatever the agreement is. And I am on call for unlimited legal services just whenever you call. Um, that's, you know, that's our agreement. And I'm usually exclusive to you or certainly not. I can't represent somebody adversely to you. Um, well, I couldn't do that anyway. But once once I'm representing you because I'm on retainer, then obviously I have all the ethical obligations towards you, et cetera. Uh, that's actually pretty unusual. I don't, I don't think many of my independent film clients have the wherewithal 
to put up a big chunk of money just to have me around on call. What's a, what's a close cousin of that though, and this is much more typical, uh, and you, you probably know about this too, is having somebody agree to do your legal work on a percentage basis. Um, and for lawyers, that's generally 5%. Um, and that's the same result though. If you are paying me on a 5% basis, um, I'm on, you know, I'm on call and I do all the legal work. I don't keep track of the hours or I could keep track of it, but only for my own internal bookkeeping pur purposes. I don't, you don't get a bill from me. Uh, and so if you met, you know, sell a script for a hundred grand, um, I make $5,000 and that is supposed to compensate me for the legal work I've done for you to date. Um, that's, I think, a, I think that's a very good, uh, basis for um the client in some instances in some it's not i mean if you if you want to retain me on that basis or engage me on a five percent contract basis um and you've got no income coming in that's great for you because you're not going to ever have to pay me so i've got a couple of clients who i obviously won't name who i've worked for 10 years probably and I may have made, you know, 500 bucks from them over those 10 years. And so I continue to do it out of loyalty and, and hope and all those things, but it's really not a good deal financially for me because I've spent 20 hours this month on their project and it fell apart again, you know, so many uh -huh. years, so hard to get projects going. And so there's one script that we've been working on trying to put it together. It's come so close, like five times, but meanwhile, I've made zero in legal fees and I've probably spent a hundred hours on it. So, you know, that's, that's the risk I'm taking when I agree to a 5% thing. On the other hand, for a client, it doesn't make a lot of sense if you have a single one-off contract. Let's say Damien's about ready to get a directing gig and he's supposed to be paid a hundred grand, you know, 50 grand on signature. Uh, that's a tweener. I mean, I'm not sure it makes sense to pay me 5%. When if you paid my hourly rate, you may only wind up giving me a couple thousand dollars in legal fees as opposed to five thousand dollars on a percentage basis. But if you want me to continue to represent you and you can pick up the phone when you're in the middle of the shoot and ask me a question without worrying about getting a bill, then you might think oh, that's fine to, to pay the percentage because that's what you're you're buying. You're not just buying the director's contract. You're buying my continued advice, you know, throughout the project. Uh, or throughout your career, for that matter. The other way to do it is um, just straight hourly, where I would get a, uh, again, people call it a retainer, but it's really just an advance. So I might say, yeah, I'll do your legal work on this film for uh, you know $500 an hour uh, against an advance that you have to pay me of 20,000 or 5,000 or whatever. Uh, and then finally, the other, um, the other, system that really only works for the production company is to um, give them a flat fee and say, I will do all the legal work and you have to define what that means. Does that mean forming the LLC? Does that mean uh, handling the distribution agreement once the film is done? Uh, or is it just limited to production contracts? You know, the actor's deals, the director's deal. Uh, but once you've defined what the universe of services is, you say, I will do this for X dollars. And um, that's my model these days. And the last few films that I've done the production legal on were based on that model. And 
there's uh, uh, advantages to both sides. I mean, I'm meaning both the lawyer and the client. The advantage to me is I the money has to be paid up front, so I don't have to worry about getting it, you know, paid. I don't have to concern myself about collection, which is always an issue for especially sole practitioners. You know, you run up a bill. You know, I have clients out there that owe me fifty thousand dollars. I'm never going to see it. I let it go too long. You know, I mean, I used to represent Death Row Records. <laughs> oh my gosh, Dr. Dre. Yeah. Well, uh, he was gone by the time I started representing them. But yeah, Dre and, and Tupac, et cetera, et cetera. Suge Knight, of course, was the uh, the head guy. What was it like working with Suge Knight? Uh, it was it was nuts. But they wound up <laughs> owing me like twenty five grand, and I just wrote it off because I wasn't about to you know get into a dispute with Suge Knight. You know, it just wasn't <laughs> worth it. So, uh, but these days for production work, if you come to me and say I'm doing this short film. And I need an attorney to do all the, you know, production work. Well, it's a short film and your budget might be 50 grand or 20 grand. And so the number I quote you is going to reflect that. Um, on the same level, if you're doing a $20 million film, then my production legal quote is going to be substantially more. It's going to be, you know, $50,000 or something. Uh, but you have, to, you have to pay it up front. That's non-negotiable because that's part of the reason I'm discounting it. And it, it, it almost always is a discount because my hourly rate is is now seven hundred an hour, but it's okay. I reduce it to five hundred for independent filmmakers that are individuals or small companies, um, and I you know so that's five hundred dollars an hour. I'm I'm out forty one years now, and most lawyers at my level are charging eleven hundred an hour. So I know it sounds like a lot of money, but it's it's like half or less than half of what my contemporaries are charging in big law firms. Now, I'm not in a big law firm. I don't have all that overhead. I understand all that. So that's why I can afford to take less. But my point was that if you do the math, um, if I charge you 20000 for all the production work, it's almost certain that I will spend more than 40 hours doing all that work. So it'll wind up being less than $500 an hour. Uh, but I don't mind that because of the certainty of getting paid and just the certainty of knowing what the universal work is. So even if I know it's going to take longer, I don't mind giving that quote. And, and once in a while, it goes really well. And you have a client who is very self-sufficient. And so I had one film where the, the uh, production legal was $10,000 because it was a very low budget film. This is a few years ago. He was a friend of a friend. Um, and this guy had a UPM, you know, a line producer that was amazing and had forms from every other film he'd ever worked on. I bet you never heard from these guys. I mean, for 10 grand, I did like, you know, five hours of work probably. Then on the other hand, though, I had a film uh, for a, a pretty well-known, you, you would know the name if I told you who she was. She's a musical artist who's also a film producer and, and film actor. Uh, and I wound up doing the legal work on their last film for 25 grand and... I think my hourly rate was like five bucks an hour because I was <laughs> I was spending so much time. They they had so many problems; it was ridiculous. Um, so you know, it it balances out in, in that respect. Um, so that's that's how most of my production legal work is being done. If you just came to me as, and said, you know, you wanted me to negotiate your director's deal, I could come up with a similar plan, even on a one-off contract. I would say okay, you know, I've done a million of these, so I think it's going to take X hours. And then I multiply that by 500, let's say, or 700 even, 
but discount it down so that it, it winds up being a, an appealing kind of approach. So I might, I might do that for $2,000 flat, right? So if it takes me 10 hours, that's on me. Uh, if my estimate of usually it would only take four hours is correct, then fine. You know, I made my hourly rate. That all sounded amazing. I mean, it sounds like you've got such a personal touch to your work. What was the reason for you going solo and creating your own business? Was it because you wanted that personal connection with the clients? Well, it's interesting. I mean, when I, when I was at Columbia, I was in charge, again, supervising litigation um, and did not very much contract work, um, even though the contracts between now, this was at the studio level, not independent film. So it was a, sort of different in that respect, too. There was just more money involved and bigger bigger names. But I wasn't really negotiating contracts that much. So then when I left Columbia the second time, because I, I think I mentioned I went back there for a minute in 91 or 90, yeah. maybe. Um, I actually did work. I, I left out somebody. I worked as what they call of counsel which is kind of an amorphous term. It means different things to different people, but it, it usually suggests that you're not a partner. You, you don't own part of the law firm, but that you're you know, relatively senior enough that you wouldn't be considered uh, just a staff associate. So I was of counsel to a firm for about a year and I did a little bit of contract stuff and really liked it. And that firm had no interest. They were a litigation firm only. And so they had no interest in doing contract work. Um, and also there was a bit of, there was, there was an issue of two alpha guys, like the guy who owned the firm, you know, was a contemporary of mine, but um, there was always an issue of who was, who was in charge. And I mean, it was his firm, so he was in charge, but like making decisions about cases and stuff. Um, my expertise was sort of discounted. So I just decided, you know what, I should just do this on my own. And that way I can do more contract stuff. And that was uh, that was probably the main reason I decided to go out on my own um, is that I just was able to be more flexible on my billing because he had no flexibility on the billing either. And he was uh, I mean, he's much wealthier than I am as a result, because he he would not if you owed him five thousand dollars, he'd sue you. I've never sued a client for fees and I don't think I ever will. When you go through the main stages, sales, distribution, production, whatever they may be, what stages are, are you happy about the most? And what stages might provide the most problems for you? Well, I mean, the, the production, you know, there's also the pre, I mean, the financing is, uh, is, can be very fun and interesting uh, to get the money to make the film, right? Um, and that because these days with all the production rebates and tax credits, there's just a lot of ways to get creative and and put the money together. Uh, there's you got to be careful there because there's pitfalls in the financing. Uh, and it's it's interesting and sort of enjoyable to help people navigate those uh, waters. Uh, the pitfalls having to do with securities law, like stocks, like you can't uh, you can't sell stock without registering with the government and all that, but people do it. It happened 20 times while we've been on this call is my point. You know, it's just so, it's so common in Hollywood for independent filmmakers to, you know, have five friends each give them $5,000 to make the film. Technically you're selling securities and technically you're committing a crime, but you know, look, I've, I've done it myself. 
I've advised people that it's worth the risk to, uh, you know, there's arguments to be made that you can sort of say it's a gray area if it's a, if it's not selling them an interest in a company, but rather selling them in percentage of the net profits. You know, there's ways to try and uh, identify the financing in such a way that you can avoid those pitfalls. But that's part of the reason you need a lawyer, because otherwise you might. Uh, it, it's actually happened a couple of times. A fairly well-known uh, actor in, uh, made a film, and he had investors in it, and they did not actually comply with any of the securities laws. And uh, as a result, the film was not successful. So the investors sued and they wound up getting the money back, even though it was meant to be an investment because they had not complied with securities laws, which essentially converted them into loans. And so that was uh, an example of how you can get burned by not uh, not having the financing straight. Um, the production side, I, I like you know, negotiating the contracts with the actors because uh, you're usually dealing with pretty, even on the indie film, indie film side, I mean, if you're negotiating their contract, it usually means they're um, a name or they're, they're the person that's getting the film financed or they're somebody of note that has an agent and their agents or managers, you know, know the business. And so, I mean, they might make unreasonably high demands for their clients, that's their jobs, but they're not, you know, it usually doesn't get bogged down in silliness because they kind of know the business and they know what the parameters are meant to be, et cetera. Um, distribution, um, I, I have also acted as a, what they call a producer's rep, um, which is kind of sort of similar to a sales agent where I'm actually been the person to find the buyer. Um, that's not my primary role and I don't do a ton of that. Uh, but I enjoy that. I mean, if somebody had a film and they didn't have any other help trying to find a, a buyer, um, I have in the past gotten involved in that. Uh, making the distribution deals are, you know, very fun and interesting because uh, there's so many different platforms now. I mean, the notion of selling your film all in to one buyer is uh, becoming less and less you know, uh, the model. And now people are doing a lot more DIY, do-it-yourself distribution, either through one of the platforms. Um, obviously, streaming has become a, a major player, especially in the last couple, three months. My God, you know, there's there's films now that uh, have done well on, better on Netflix than they would have certainly done in the theaters. Uh, so, yeah, it's just, you know, the whole, the whole process. I actually really, I, I almost always enjoy uh, the process because you're working together and this, I know this sounds kind of Pollyannish too for a lawyer, but you're working with somebody to make something right. It's not, it's, it's adversarial because they're trying to get more money and you're the producer trying to get, pay them less money, but it's not like litigation where you're confronting each other and pointing fingers and saying, you're an asshole. No, you're an asshole. <laughs> it's, just, it's not like that. It's, you're, you're both jointly trying to uh, create something. And so I, I really enjoy the fact that, you know, even when I'm negotiating with the lawyer for the other side, uh, we're both intending for his client and my producer to work together happily, hopefully, in the future. And so it's it's kind of a, a more enjoyable context, right, in litigation. It certainly sounds so. But what type of films has your work been associated with? Let me think. Um, I don't know how to define that. I mean, yeah, I mean... 
it just depends on what you're, you know, I'm trying to think of what my biggest film, I mean, I did the work on uh, The Trap, which was uh, a Queen Latifah film that's on Netflix right now. Uh, oh, okay. I know Queen Latifah, definitely. Yeah, it was a comedy about, uh, it's actually, a, I think it's a pretty funny movie. It's a, a comedy about a couple of brothers down in Atlanta who uh, accidentally dump a bale of weed in their chicken fryer one day. And so their local okay. chicken joint becomes uh, like the most popular. Yes, in the, the Snapchat. Okay. Yeah. So that was fun. I did, there was a film called We Married Margot that I actually uh, did the work on, was in, involved in that the, won a couple of awards back in the day. Um, there was a film called Shy, Shy Girl that won Slam Dance back in 99. Uh, I was also an executive producer on that. Um, oh. And I'm trying, you know, I'm not, I'm not thinking of some big Sundance film or something. I've had a couple of films at Sundance um, and Palm Springs and stuff like that. I mean, Tropicalia, um, I did the legal work and, and was an executive producer on. Uh, was a movie about it's a documentary about the musical uh movement in brazil back in the 70s called tropicalia that was at telluride so yeah i mean it's the kind again the films that i'm working on are generally not stuff that you would see uh you know being distributed by any of the majors or even any of the mini majors most of them are sold directly by the production company i mean they might go via Lionsgate or via new line or something ultimately but uh yeah they're they're not they're not like they don't have a home going in like you go to sundance now and many of the films already have distribution right they're already associated with somebody by the time they get to sundance and most of the films i work on that would not that would not be the case they're usually ground up um it's just a film called encounter with uh, liam hensworth tell us about your roles as an executive producer because i had no idea that you did that yeah as well. i mean the um if you look at my imdb page you'll see i've got i've got quite a few producer credits um some some are straight up producer because i you know might have actually invested in it um I, I invested in a short film with a couple of really good friends of mine that wound up winning a ton of awards called the legend of beaver dam um that was my big sundance claim to fame it won an honorable mention at the sundance uh, film festival um good on you yeah, it was cool. I'm telling you, I got I was in Paris uh, when the award when the word came out that we got in. Forget about winning anything, and I was just I like I think I started crying at the table with joy. <laughs> I was so happy. Oh, I, should, I should hope joy to that. It was a pretty big deal. So the EP stuff, uh, um, a lot of them were earlier days where I was willing to trade income or fees for credit, and so that. Uh, some of those executive producer credits really had to do more with me just being paid by the credit right so instead yeah. of instead of paying my fee entirely they would pay me less but say well we'll give you an executive producer credit um i've got a couple clients that just routinely give me a producer credit because they feel that my advice and role has been larger than simply uh as a lawyer um in some cases i have been involved in bringing together the project, you know, putting people together um, on the project, uh, finding, you know, finding a script and, and putting it together with a director and then bringing on a producer. Um, and I, yeah, I like that. So I've been a creative producer. Um, 
I don't know if you saw this anywhere in my bios, but I'm, I've produced a ton of theater. Uh, yes. And uh, that's another thing I really enjoy uh, doing. So the producer side on the film is a lot, a lot of credits that are simply uh, an acknowledgement that I was the attorney, you know, as, as well. Uh, I'm doing, I'm doing less of that now because I have the credits and I mean, if the right film came along, there's a film that's going to go in uh, Atlanta in the fall that I'm, uh, I'm going to get a co-producer credit on, but I am actually done some co-producer type activities. Um, but it's, yeah, it's an enjoyable process. And I, uh, I, I tend to do more of the pure creative producing on the live theater side than on the film side, but to the extent I've done it in film, I, I really do enjoy it. And, uh, it allows me to sort of insert myself a little bit more creatively in the process than most lawyers would. When I saw that you was involved in theater, I thought to myself, maybe you have a background in acting. What's the pull for you? Why are you involved in theater as well? Um, well, I, well I, I did a little bit of acting in college and stuff, but never, you know, and I, I've done a, a couple of parts since as favors and just for larks and stuff. Uh, but I, yeah, I'm not an actor. I think I started it in, uh, I, I always, you know, I did like it in school. So I was in, in, interested in theater, always liked the whole live aspect of theater. The theater thing, I, so I, I wound up working with uh, JD in the uh, North Hollywood Sun Valley Theater um, and really liked it. I was like an associate artistic director. And then um, around the same time, excuse me, I think it was 88, 89, um, a friend of mine had a house guest who was looking for a theater in LA to put on a play. And we met and we hit it off and we've remained friends since. I mean, he's my business partner in Edinburgh, a guy named Nigel Miles Thomas, who was an actor. You might've seen him. Do you remember Grange Hill or are you too young for that show? Uh, yes, my uncle used to watch it, but I remember the theme tune for the show. Yeah, he would know Nigel because Nigel was he, Nigel played like a, a, you know the cricket coach for a while or something. I don't know, and then he was on Doctor Who a couple of times. Uh, oh, anyway, he's on him. Yeah, he lives up in Edinburgh now. But in any event, he and I hit it off. I produced his play here at the Beverly Hills Playhouse. Uh, it was called Bloody Poetry. It was about when Percy by Shelley and Lord Byron met for the first time in Lake Geneva. Really cool piece. And we remained friends. And so we started producing stuff together and I really liked it. I love live theater. I think there's nothing like it. Um, I'm a little bit with, I'm having withdrawal symptoms because uh, yeah, it's nice that, you know, the Hamilton is on Disney plus and it was an amazing production, but it's not the same as seeing it live. <laughs> you know, and it's yeah, uh, completely different. For any young people that are listening to this podcast that would want advice about how to become an entertainment lawyer. What type of advice could you give them? What would you say to those young people? Well, that I, I get asked that a lot, as you might guess. I mean, I, I constantly friends saying, oh, Bobby's graduating from law school, wants to be. I mean, there's just there's no substitute for uh, it's a it's a people business. Right. You know that. I mean, how many of your I, uh, by the way, I was very impressed with your video uh, reel. That looks oh, really thank cool. you. So but. I assume at some point one of those jobs you got because you knew somebody. And I, I mean that in the, the best sense, right? You heard from somebody oh, yes. that had worked yes. with you so before. More so, than half. Yeah. 
Well, that's my practice too. I don't advertise. I don't have to because I just get all of my stuff by word of mouth. Um, and so basically I would say just go and start networking and go if you're in law school, join all of the obvious, you know, entertainment law society, movie club, whatever, and go to events. There are there are companies and organizations in London as well as there are here. Uh, and I, I, I'm not sure what it's called in, in London. It may be, there's, there's, a, there's an organization here called Film Independent. Um, I'm not sure if they have a London branch or not, but there must be an equivalent there of a, a, an organization, a nonprofit of filmmakers, you know, that get together and give seminars yeah. and discuss things. Join that, right? It's a hundred bucks to join it here in California. And a hundred dollars is a lot of money, but it's an investment um, in your future because you'll meet filmmakers there it's if you want to be your own lawyer that's you got to do that you just got to meet all of the filmmakers because they're the ones that are going to be hiring you so you got to go out to you know the organizations that have these things and go to the receptions go to the seminars join the organizations and uh you know just make every make sure everybody knows that when you graduate in a month or if you're already out you know you're ready willing and able to uh to take on new clients and hopefully you'll have done enough, enough networking to get the word out. If you want to work in a, in a studio setting or something, it's probably best to try and get a job um, in a law firm that they use. So, I, I mean, there's all kinds of entertainment law firms, Denton and, you know, I can't even think of some of the other ones in London right now, but basically uh, try and get a job as a junior in one of those firms. Um, and if your mission is to get a job as a junior in one of those firms, then it's just it's just tough. You just got to how you know, you just got to show why, you know, I mean, if I'm sitting there ready to hire somebody and I see that one lawyer, you know, one potential candidate uh, worked craft services on a short film and the other one didn't, I'm going to if all things being equal, I'm going to hire the lawyer that worked as a craft services person just because it shows that they tried to like interact and get involved. I right? like your style, definitely. You know, it's just, it's hard. I mean, uh, I, I, I have, because I'm also a law professor here, and so I have students I know that are out there, you know, just graduated a year or two ago, and they're struggling to get a practice going, but they, you know, they have been to every copyright society, they joined Film Independent, they joined Filmmakers Alliance, it's all about networking and meeting people. Um, and, you know, that's how, and doing podcasts. I, I, I don't know if you would want a first year lawyer who doesn't have any clients on your podcast, but uh, you might, I mean, there might be some might, angle, yeah. you know, and do, do those types of things for marketing. Um, and that's, you know, just a matter of getting your name out there. I, I don't know about London, but being an entertainment lawyer in LA is, uh, extremely competitive because everybody it's the sexy fun area you know would you rather yeah. be an entertainment lawyer or a you know trust in a state's probate lawyer entertainment all the way right i mean that's that's unfortunately or not unfortunately but that that speaks to why it's so competitive out here and uh i mean the other thing of course is people call themselves entertainment lawyers because they had one you know contract 30 years ago with a short film and that's it, but they still, Oh, I see. 
you know, it's because there's no there's no re uh, regulation, there's no restriction. Um, it's not like there's a a body, the legal, uh, there's no state bar or, you know, entertainment law society that gives out titles and says this person's an entertainment lawyer, this one's not. Whoever calls themselves an entertainment lawyer is an entertainment lawyer. So that's one thing I would say if you're looking to hire an entertainment lawyer, definitely get referrals. And anyone that won't get you give you referrals either doesn't have any or is concerned about what that person's going to say about them, which is not a good sign. Uh, uh, you, know, you approach me, yeah. you know, can, you, can you give me the name and emails or numbers of people that you've represented? Yeah, I've got a, I've got a set list. Um, and I think, yeah, I mean, people are generally, I can't, I honestly can't think of anybody that's been dissatisfied with the, the way I've represented them. Um, at least not on the production legal work. I've got a couple litigation matters where people weren't necessarily happy with the result, but that's, you know, that's litigation. I mean, you're never going to be particularly happy with the result in litigation. Even when you win, there's usually some, you know, <laughs> uh, babe, um, yeah, it's just, uh, I, I would say if somebody wants to be an entertainment lawyer, reach out to, you know, if you know somebody's aunt's boyfriend's cousin, right. Who's an entertainment lawyer, set up a meeting with them, try and get it, you know, try and get a 10 minute phone call with them. Um, Cause that's, you know, I, like I said, I do that a bit. I get, I get an email or a request for a phone call once every few weeks. And, you know, I try to, I try to spend some time with people, give them the, whatever guidance I can. It's just a networking, right? The more people that know about you, uh, uh, you know, next week you might be at a, a party and somebody goes, God, I really need a film lawyer in LA. And you'll go, well, I just happened, you know, I'm being presumptuous. Yeah, literally. That no, you no, would, you're not being, you're right. I mean, you know what I'm saying, though, but you'd be yeah. like, yeah, I just had this guy on my podcast. So that's that's how it works. That's that's how all my business gets to me. It's all word of mouth. It's all people that met me or uh, I've represented in the past. I, just, I literally today got two emails from people that said, Steve Younger recommended you to me, and Steve's an agent. I'm, I'm sorry, Steve's a lawyer at uh, one of the TV production, but they don't do litigation. So when they have a litigation matter, uh, you know the you know the TV series Sharknado. Yes, I've heard of that. So one of the actors on Sharknado had an issue uh, with some merchandising income that wasn't being paid. So that law firm who represents her uh, sent her to me, and so. Now that guy liked how I represented his client. So if somebody else came along, another actress, it's been like the third time I've gotten business as a result of that referral. And I think that's uh, that's really what it's all about. Because you can, I think you can advertise all you want, but the kind of people, at least in LA, that you get from an ad are not necessarily, you know, straight people. And uh, I mean straight in terms of being honest and upright, obviously. Not. Oh. Yeah, not, not their uh, <laughs> their sexual preference. I understand. <laughs> yeah, I mean, referrals uh, are always better. And I and the other guy was referred by somebody I I represented on a on a film, and he sent me an email, actually last night, but I didn't read it till this morning, saying, "Hey, can you call me about this problem I'm having with my? He's a radio announcer, and he's got some issue with his contract or whatever." So anyway, that's uh, that's my recommendation. Just get your name out there, meet everybody you can. And, and spend the time out there in the community because uh, I've gotten so much business from just running into somebody and having given them my business card. And I, they, might, they might call two years later. 
say, yeah, I met you at that event, Filmmakers Alliance back then, remember? Uh, and I now need somebody to work on my film. Well, Michael, we've come to that time where the podcast has to come to an end. But thank you so much for coming on. I really, really appreciate it. You've said so many things that I don't think a lot of filmmakers who listen to the podcast would have known. Um, and it's vital and it's important that more of us consider the importance of having a lawyer. Oh, you're very welcome. <laughs>